KP, KPC, News, Information, Culture, KPCC, California Sensibility. Hey, I'm Amy Choi. And I'm Rebecca Lair, and we are the Mashup Americans. So, Rebecca, how many times do you think we talk in a day? Why would you even try to say time? <laughs> like, it's one time, but it lasts for 12 to 15 hours. Uh-huh. It's just like... We're just in one long conversation, but it's also maybe it's 365 days, actually. It's just like one long one over text, over chat, over email, over Facebook, over Slack, over the phone, over FaceTime. And then sometimes we're in these fancy studios like right now with engineers and producers listening in and we're being recorded over ISDN. We're just constantly talking and also putting out words into the world. Into the world. I mean, and also, uh, like, I wonder what people would think about the words that we say over Slack. Yes, we say different words on all of those different <laughs> platforms. <laughs> but it is interesting to think about, like, how, how do we communicate in all of those different ways? And yet we're still pretty careful about the words that we choose. You know, thinking about, is that the right word for it? Is that the right language for it. Did we just make that word up? And maybe is that word kind of racist? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Is the context for that word racist? (laughs) Yeah, because you know what, guys? Words matter. So hard. And when you say them, where you say them, how you say them, who you say them to, and if this year has taught us anything at all, and we've learned a lot this year. Take a moment for 2016. Hello, pouring one out right now. Uh, It's about the power of words, the power of rhetoric, both the ugly and hateful rhetoric that we we see so much of right now, but also the soaring and empowering and the rhetoric that's reaffirming of our basic goodness. It's so important. It really is what we have to hold us together and to bind us together. So we're just, we're super excited to have a lexicographer from Merriam-Webster on our show today. And she's going to talk all about words and language and identity and how words really enter into our language and reflect our culture. Um, She's also going to share uh, their word of the year, which is so good. It is so perfect. Corey Stamper is the associate editor at Merriam-Webster, America's foremost dictionary. They get 200 million lookups a month, so they have some data to draw from. Mm -hmm. And they also have the world's best Twitter account, just (laughs) in case you're feeling down from the Twitters and you need a delightful new follow. Totally. Well, we could not be more pumped. On to the show. We are here with Corey Stamper. Corey, um, what is your favorite word? That is an ever-rotating cast. Um, I like the verb monkeyfy. Which, wow, go on. Which means to... How do you spell it? Oh, Lord. M-O-N-K-E-Y-F-Y. Amy's watching uh-huh. me spell on my hand as I'm doing that. Uh, it <laughs> means to make like a monkey. My baby, I always call her the monkey. Maybe she's monkeyfying she all the time. She is, or you have monkeyfied her. That's a great one. What's your favorite swear word? I like the modifier cunting. Oh, what? Whoa. Yeah, I never thought about using it in that way. Right. Wait, go on. Can you please use it in a sentence? <laughs> uh, the four train was so cunting packed. Oh, like, what? Uh, there's so much to think about there. Yeah. 
Can we talk about the word cunt? Cunt, I think, is Germanic. It's an old word. I mean, I, I think it goes back to at least the 12th century. No, yeah. I lied. It goes back to the 14th century. And so it's still a while. Yeah, and it's Germanic, and it's always referred to the uh, female the... genital organs. Cunt. Yeah. <laughs> Can we say that? Well, sure, why not? This well, is educational. Try to stop me. Yeah. Try to stop me. <laughs> Do you want to share with our listeners what the word of 2016 is? I would be happy to. The Merriam-Webster word of the year is surreal. <sighs> it is surreal. Isn't it, though? Do the words of the year always make sense the way that surreal makes sense for 2016? Sometimes yes and sometimes no. So the way we choose the word of the year is we don't sit down and say, okay, how did the year feel to us? But what we do is we look through all of the lookups on our online dictionary and we're looking for volume of lookups and then sort of percentage changes from year to year. That's how you mm. see sort of what's spiking this year as opposed to what's spiking last year. Right, um, because there's some words that are just always the most looked up. Right. So actually one like, of... Like what's an example of that? Fascism is a great example of that mm. word. So it's mm. been... It, it had been our top lookup for a number of weeks after the U.S. election and a lot of people. I wonder why. I have no <laughs> idea. Yeah. Mm, yeah. But mm. a lot of people said, oh, that's going to be the word of the year because it's been number one for so long. But fascism actually is looked up all the time. I think it's the number three top lookup of all time. Wow. So it gets lots of volume, but it's always looked up. So it's not really indicative of something specific to this year. So, but surreal was definitely indicative of something. So when did surreal spike? What were the kind of surges around Surreal? So Surreal had some kind of spike almost once a month this entire past year. It had three main spikes. The first one was in March, and that was in response to the terror attacks in Brussels. Mm -hmm. Mm. And that stayed pretty high for a while. And that's actually kind of typical. You see Surreal spike uh, particularly in regard to unfortunate events, people that's one of the first words that people will look up. But it was really high after that. It had another spike in July that was due to like five different things. Uh, one of them was that Hillary Clinton called the GOP convention, the opening of it, surreal. So mm. everybody was there. Um, and also in within like two days of each other, there was an attempted coup in Turkey. And that was yes. called Surreal. Mm -hmm. And then there was the terrorist attack in Nice that was also called Surreal. Mm -hmm. But by far the biggest spike of the year was November 9th, 10th, 11th, and onward. It was, that was the response that people had to the U.S. election news. What is the exact definition of Surreal? I can tell you that. The exact yes, you definition. I of, bet. I can. <laughs> the definition of surreal is marked by the intense irrational reality of a dream. It mm. also means unbelievable or fantastic. Because when you, you're defining a word, you define it contextually. You define it based on how people use it in written prose. And that means that sometimes prose doesn't give you much to go on. You know, mm -hmm. someone will say, I saw the Beastie Boys in 1987 and it was surreal. But that doesn't tell me what what about that experience was surreal. Right. 
Um, right. Does that is, are you using that to mean awesome? Are you using that to mean you were high? Like right. what? Like what? Are All you of using? the above. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. And I mean, I think that's really interesting because it speaks to the emergence of language. Period. Right. Like I think we always think about at Mashup how English is one way to think of it is as very flexible. Like it's able to bring in all of these words that are about our shared experience, but that may not be official in yeah. some capacity, like Spanglish or Chinglish or Hingl- all of those words. Right. But that in some English is also extremely greedy. Like we just like take things and we're like, oh no, that's English. Right. Can you tell us about how words actually become part of language? Yeah. I mean, well, I can tell you how words sort of wend their way through a language. Um, Mm. Words are generally created in speech, even though we are a literate society and we put a lot of emphasis on writing. Most words are, are first spoken when they come about. And then the speaker shares that word with friends or with a group of colleagues and it starts to get adopted by that small group. They take it out and eventually it starts showing up in writing, usually personal writing. Though with the internet, personal writing is also now public writing. Mm-hmm. Like I yes. can search Twitter, I can search some Facebook, I can search people's public blogs and find out if they've used this word previously. I can search Usenet. I mean, that's going back to the dark ages of the internet. <laughs> Once it starts appearing in writing, what's interesting is that people begin to think of it as official. Right. Even though it might have existed for who knows how long prior to it being in writing, our feeling is is that it has more permanence. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's also the point at which lexicographers can start collecting evidence for it. So we can start saying, oh, hey, this was used on Usenet in 1989. And what does it take for a word, you know, to get to the point where you're considering, um, you know, including it in a dictionary and I'm thinking about words like that come from hip hop lyrics. Right. Or which probably comes from young black culture that right. then gets translated into hip hop lyrics that then gets, of course, appropriated into the broader culture, mainstream culture, and then right. becomes an official word. At what point in that life cycle are you, not you personally, but your team saying, like, this is a word we need to figure out and define? So broadly, there are three requirements for a word to be entered into a dictionary. It needs to have widespread use. So it can't just be a word that shows up only in, like, wine spectator. Not just in terms of tone. So not just like, oh, this was used in wine spectator and vibe. But also geographically, like, oh, this was used in California and New York and South Africa and Canada. Like the broader the the spread in all ways, the the likelier candidate it is for entry. Sustained use is the second criterion. And sustained use is kind of uh, squishy. You don't want to enter a word into the dictionary that is going to disappear because Even though the dictionary is a record of the language as it's used, people don't conceive of it that way. They think of it as this is the English language. Mm -hmm. The definer Mm. of what the language is. Right. And or, you know, when you hear people say things like we're the gatekeepers of proper English or we are the guardians of proper English. Oh, I have so many questions about proper English. (laughs) Go on. I will tell you all (laughs) my thoughts about it. So you have a lot of people who approach the dictionary as this is what English is. 
And you and honestly, it just takes a lot of time to enter a word that then falls out of use, you know, six months later or a year later. So sustained use is kind of squishy, and that's one of those things that you kind of have to feel out. Um, some words get entered really quickly because we know they're not going to go away. So uh, AIDS was a word that got mm. entered very quickly. SARS got entered very quickly. Selfie. AIDS got entered quickly even though the U.S. government wouldn't acknowledge it existed? Right. For yeah. eight years? <laughs> yeah, right. See, that's another thing is that the, the dictionary is independent of politics. It's independent yeah. of... I mean, it's sort of, it's, you know, people say, oh, it's an ivory tower thing, but it's really not. I mean, it's really sort of as egalitarian as you can get when it comes to language. Because we'll consider anything that's written down for entry. Right. So, so I'm collecting citations for lit. I'm collecting citations for shade. I'm mm-hmm. collecting citations for read. Like, oh, he read her. And, mm-hmm. and so youth slang is one of the ways that, that um, words come in. That idea of how, you know, we pick up so many words from uh, black language, like black Mm -hmm. culture, and also from queer, drag, trans culture. And I think people talk a lot about appropriation. And then you have, like, white 19-year-olds. They don't know any black people, but they're using all black language. Right. If we think of language as kind of representative of all culture, does that strengthen kind of the source culture? Does it disseminated does it does it take away for the the purpose of the dictionary historically what has happened is that once a group's lingo gets adopted by whoever the majority group is which is generally white people then it suddenly becomes a signal to writers and editors that it's okay to use and so you see it more in print now what's been really interesting to see in the last 10 years particularly as there, and this is all due to the internet, I think, particularly as there have been a lot of sort of hyphenate uh, publications that have come out, right? Like The Root is a great example, Mm -hmm. or um, The Mary Sue, or, you know, Bitch, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, you start seeing writing, you see more writing by people of color, by women, by uh, gay, lesbian, queer, trans people, you start encountering their language more. And because of that, and because it's all online now, and that's kind of where we we end up looking, that's where a lot of print is going, is online, that means that you're actually, not only do does sort of the majority culture come in contact with it quicker, and will adopt it quicker, but lexicographers come into contact with it quicker, mm. too. I mean, appropriation is something that that's that's a hugely hugely complex issue, and it just and it really kind of varies from word to word and person to person, honestly. And and that makes it hard then when you're a lexicographer and you're sort of like, okay, so lit like lit means the same whether a black person uses it or a white person uses it. So how do I, as a lexicographer, note that this was originally slang from African American vernacular English? Right. I think there's a power in in noting it or in um, writing it down and acknowledging that that's where it came from. Right. That seems very, very important because then it doesn't get lost, which is to say, I know there's a, that must be complicated. How do you say when you're defining something, this comes from black culture in the 90s or whatever. Yeah. But but even saying that gives it makes it true, yeah. even right. though it's always been true or. Because ultimately, historical I feel like, weight. 
Yeah. Or some... Yeah, and we, we still are, you know, we're all still seeking that uh, validation. There's something about it being validated in an official place that says, like, no, this comes from this, and right. you're mm-hmm. using it now, but know that, that it has a root somewhere. Right. And not yeah. that you can't use it, because I think you no. know, something that we talk about a lot is authenticity. And we just recently had... Um, Eddie Huang, who mm-hmm. on on the show and talking about like Chinese American food or like why he loves hip hop and is that authentic? And he was saying, which is that you're authentic to your own experience. Right. So it may be authentic for you to say slay, but that doesn't mean that the word slay originated with me. Right. Yeah, exactly. Mashup Americans see things a little differently than everybody else. So every week, we serve up a curated list of the most interesting stories from around the world. Subscribe to our newsletter at mashupamericans.com newsletter for a mashup take on global events. It'll make you think, laugh, and have your thoughts provoked. You will be delighted. So do it. mashupamericans.com newsletter. I really want to talk about this this idea about proper language or proper English. So as a first-generation immigrant kid from an immigrant family who, you know, my first language was Korean, I was going into school speaking Korean and not English. So, you know, something that my parents were really, really invested in me assimilating into the culture was always like, you want to speak perfect English. You know, like, and that was like a like a core tenant of growing up was that like to be American, you speak this language. Now, I feel like as a parent now, my stance on that is almost the complete opposite. (laughs) But, you know, that idea of what is right, like what is what is institutionally proper now that that is so important. And I think a lot of people who speak two languages or three languages or English isn't their first, they're coming to America, like this is something that's really important to them. Mm-hmm. As a lexicographer, is there a proper English? So there is standard English. Now, here are my thoughts and opinions on standard English. Standard English is primarily a written dialect, right? So nobody natively grows up speaking or mastering standard English. If they did, then there would be no need to like drag, you know, seventh graders through what are the parts of speech and don't end sentences with prepositions and use the subjunctive here. Like there wouldn't be any reason to do that. So standard English is is one type of English and it is primarily a sort of a formal written type of English. Now, there are lots of other types of English. Um, And so we talk a lot about dialects of English. And I understand because I grew up in the American educational system, we were all sort of instilled with this idea that if you're educated, if you're going to go anywhere in this world, you're going to speak proper English. Mm -hmm. And that still gets pressed in schools. And that's fine. It's important to teach students how to write well. And that's great. But there's also this this subtle morality that's given to proper English. So so when people talk about proper English or they talk about words they don't like, they talk about good words and bad words or this is right and this is wrong. It's just not that simple. Like language is about context. And so, for instance, 
Even though I grew up speaking English as my first language, I grew up out west. And so I grew up speaking a different dialect. Where did you grow up? I grew up outside of Denver. But I grew up speaking what's called general western dialect. It's general western American. Like would you say like um, when you smoke pot, you smoke you smoke up instead of smoke out. That was, the, <laughs> that was a really big definer in, a, was in my teens. There you go. Yeah. Wait, what <laughs> yeah. did yeah. California say? Now I can't remember because I lived on both coasts for so long. Oh. But I think it was when we were growing up, you want to smoke out. And really? then on the oh. west, co- on the east coast, it would smoke up. Mm, Chicago yeah. kids say smoke up. Yeah. Yeah. But we also go. drink pop. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I grew up drinking pop. I grew up standing in line, not online. Mm-hmm. In yeah, line. Me too. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I have what phonologists call the cot cot merger. That means that <laughs> when I say the word cot, C O T, I give the O the same vowel that I would give the past tense of catch, C-A-U-G-H-T. Oh, I do so, not have that merger. Right. Caught and caught. Well, I do. Yeah. Wait, what do you say? Caught. For C-O-T? I don't like that. Yeah. That's wrong. <laughs> That's wrong. You're wrong. Well, so so on the- You're you know, right. You're wrong. <laughs> so, you, so you get- you get, I'm unmerged. Yeah. You get, you get caught and caught, or you get- Oh, yeah. That's one. So I, I have the caught-caught merger. So Me too. I, so I have to work really hard to say caught. I can say caught. He caught the thief, but it's really Why hard to do. Why would you do that? <laughs> yeah, right. But that's not natural to me. I also have what's called the Mary, Mary, Mary merger. M-A-R-R-Y. Mm-hmm. Getting M- married. Yep. M-A-R-Y and M-E-R-R-Y. There's Mary, the name. There's marry, the verb to join two people mm-hmm. nuptially. Mm-hmm. And then there's Mary. Mary oh, no, Christmas. none of those make sense yeah. to me. They're all, yeah, they're I, all have the the, I have the Mary, Mary, Mary merger, too. Right. <laughs> Since three out of three do, that means it's right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Is that how, isn't that how language works? Yeah, yeah. and that's, that's what you're doing at Merriam-Webster all day long. That's, that's what I do all day long. Right, but so this is the point, right? Like, whatever context we grow up in or we speak in or until that context is shifted, we don't know that we have a particular type of language. Huh. Yes. Mm-hmm. But this is what happens when you're sort of dislocated from your own natural dialect, right? right? And we're just talking about normalized American English words here. Like, we're not yeah. even saying things like kimchi or challah bread. Yeah. How much of American English would you say is borrowed in that way? Oh, most of it. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So English as a language is uh, just, it, it's from the very beginning, it has been stealing words from other languages. So English as a language kind of starts around six or 700 AD. And it's not, it was brought to the British Isles by conquerors who were sort of like in the Danish peninsula in North Germany. So when English was brought over to, or the, the languages that sort of founded English came to the British Isles, that language was really super, super different from the English that we know now. And from the very beginning, we have evidence in the written record of like, oh, they were stealing Latin words. They probably were stealing some Celtic words, too. So English has always stolen words. It's just, and that's kind of what languages that have lots of contact with other cultures and languages do, unless there's some kind of authority that prevents that. And even Mm. then, 
it's pretty iffy. Like, right. And how, so Rebecca and I are obsessed with these authorities and what their purpose is in life. Because, I mean, how effective can that be? Like, we're thinking, like, in Spain or in France, there's these, like, institutions of language that are saying, oh, hey, this is what Spanish is. Mm -hmm. This is what French is. Whatever you're speaking all over North Africa is not really French. Whatever you're speaking all over South America is not really Spanish, much less to think of Spanglish or the combinations of French and English. So what role do those institutions have? And or maybe I should say, what value do those institutions have? I can see from your face that you don't think yeah. I have that much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of anti-academy myself. I think, you know, traditionally those, those they're called academies. Those academies were founded, I, I mean, it was really sort of jingoistic. Like, we want to keep all the foreign words out of the language. It was both of these, I mean, the Italian Academy, the Spanish Academy, and the French Academy were all founded to preserve the purity of the language. And there was a big push in the... 1700s for an English academy. And that came to nothing, which is probably good for a bunch of different reasons. But isn't this absurd when you have like so much of Spanish, let's say, comes from Arabic? This idea of purity, of making language great again. Right. (laughs) Um, When in fact, it's always porous. Right. Right. I mean, it's always evolving. And it should be. I mean, when whenever you try and codify a language and and keep new words out or foreign words out, you are pretty much sealing the death sentence to a language. Like, Mm -hmm. that's how languages die. Languages die because they don't expand vocabulary. Their speaker bases grow smaller and smaller and smaller. And then that language eventually disappears. So, yeah, and I I think the idea of, of what's pure language, I love getting into arguments with people who are like, we need to make the language great again. Like, we need to kick out foreignisms. We need to, like, we shouldn't have... There shouldn't be any reason why we're borrowing a, a, or creating a word when we have a perfectly good adjective that will already describe that. And, you know, why would you make copacetic when you can say fine? Like, why would you mm-hmm. do that? And I, I, I love arguing with those people because English has always borrowed words and English has always commodified other languages that it comes in contact with. And so my question is always, OK, how far back makes it a pure language? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, we can go back to speaking Old English like we did in 900 A.D. And like, I'm down. Is that with why that. they make us memorize the freaking Canterbury Tales in college? Or like reading Beowulf. <laughs> oh my yeah. god. Yep. <laughs> no thank yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. Right. Right. Like, okay. So if Grendel. So, yeah. Right. So if Grendel. you if you want to go back to Beowulf, like I'm oh my down god, with we that. We are three like, nerdy ladies just <laughs> sitting here talking about Beowulf. Oh my god. Okay. You know it. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, my favorite kind of ladies. Yeah. So you do have to say, okay, so so give me a date. Like, give me some formative point at which language became English, became impure. Right. And also language as a reflection of our lived experience of our culture. So, okay, you want to have a pure language. You don't ever get to order Chinese takeout anymore. Right. Like you don't get to eat tacos. Yeah. You don't get bagels, you don't get bialis, you don't get enchiladas, you don't get chow mein. Such a bummer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's well, just suck. kind of like... What do you get? <laughs> right, like right. potatoes? <laughs> I know, right? When we take words in from other languages, it's because we're having contact with those language speakers. So in the 1800s, we saw this huge boom 
of food words from Yiddish, from German, from Chinese, from Japanese. These were all big immigrant groups into the U.S. And so to say, well, you know, 1600, we're going to say 1600 is the, the date of purity. Fine. But you lose all of these food words. And that kind of it, it linguistically erases the importance of, mm-hmm. you know, the immigrant populations to America on the language. You know, it's it ends up being very you end up getting into sort of a broader issue that's not just linguistic at that point. You're right. really trying to erase big chunks of the history of and just our Amen. country. Right. <laughs> As a lexicographer, do you see a similar surge in that I- ideology now that, you know, because I imagine it, the immigration is such a hot topic that, you know, you're sitting in a place where you're like, okay, so we s- talked about how dictionaries could be gatekeepers mm-hmm. to a language and a culture. What are some of the tensions right now in your field? They tend not to be ethnically cultural. So, like, nobody is going to say don't enter Pad Thai into the dictionary or don't enter Bibimbap into the dictionary because people love Pad Thai and Bibimbap, right? right? Like, What's not to love? Yeah, seriously. But the I would like some right now. I know. Yeah, I'm either of <laughs> I'm those. very hungry. But <laughs> the, the big tension that we see and have seen for a while, honestly, is how technology interfaces with language. So, mm. of course, the biggest complaint that we hear is... Texting is ruining the language. The internet is ruining the language. Kids today, it's always kids today. Kids today don't know how to write. They don't know how to speak. My grandson texted me and wouldn't use the word for. He used the number for. And I, da, 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 mm-hmm. da. and so, so that's a huge point of tension people have. They feel like because we, because they perceive us as the gatekeepers of proper English, that new things cannot be proper. And therefore, we need to just get rid of all of these silly words. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sit and wonder sometimes I read the paper every day. All these happenings are secular, just happen different ways. Hola. Please give us Cinco Estrellas on iTunes. It helps people find us, and it also makes us feel really good. iTunes.com slash mashup Cinco Estrellas. Gracias. Bye. What do you think 2017 will bring? What are your predictions for Word of the Year in 2016? Language trends? Oof. My prediction for the word is clusterfuck. (laughs) (laughs) We might be seeing a lot more Russian in Uh, France this coming year. (laughs) Who in their right mind would have thought that 2016 would have brought Brexit, President-elect Trump, the death of Prince, <laughs> the death of Alan Rickman, like right, like Alan, Ri- oh God. Alan Rickman. Mm-hmm. I know, I was very sad about that. So it's really hard to predict where language will go. I can tell you, sort of, the general trends are that youth slang, which is you know, youth slang nowadays is mostly taken from, oddly enough, from like African American vernacular slang. And that's not odd. That that's not odd. Common. No, and that's it's been yeah. that way. But it's also starting to be sort of taken up 
from gay and drag slang. Mm-hmm. Yes. So shade, yes. read, those are all, I mean, that's all Paris is burning. Like that is all the drag uh-huh. scene in New York at the beginning of the 80s, right? So that'll continue to happen. Like that will be where a lot of the slang comes from. We're going to continue to have people wringing their hands over the death of English because people are texting, and that will just be what it is. We're probably also going to have a lot more people looking very carefully at words used. This is something we've seen as the presidential election sort of ramped up, and certainly post-election, is people are really grabbing on individual words. So you'll see a huge spike for a word that is sort of like, Eh, everyone knows what that word means. And and the thing is, is that people, it's not that people are ignorant of what that word means. It's that they really want to get the full nuance of the word to sort of hold whichever speaker up to account. Like, that's why people look up fascism so much. It's mm. not because they don't have a sense as to what fascism means. It's because they want to know what the thing fascism is. Another really common lookup, actually one of the words that spiked this year was deplorable. People looked it up, not necessarily because they didn't know what it meant, but because they really wanted to get the full nuance of what exactly were you saying when you said. That actually makes me hopeful that people are, you know, thinking of words, the power of words, and holding people accountable for the use of those words, for understanding really what they mean. Because as we currently are, it feels that there's a war of language Mm-hmm. happening and not in dictionary necessary language, but language of hate and um, a language that makes many of many mashups feel so vulnerable mm-hmm. to hold people accountable for the way that they use that language seems like a real it's like one of the fights that we can fight going forward. And so it makes me hopeful that people would look it up and, and care enough to know what something means. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so during one of the debates, Donald Trump said, you know, it's just words. It's just words. But that's what we have. That's all we've got is words. And and that's how we communicate. And that's how we live our lives. We live our lives inside of a language and sometimes inside of multiple languages. And that's kind of where we're at at this point is we feel like all we've really got are the words that we have in front of us. So figure out what every single nuance of those words means. And And we've seen more and more of that sort of as the year goes on. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. It was fun. So I feel like I learned a lot today. Well, that wasn't so surreal. <laughs> it was pretty real. Super I'm into real. that. <laughs> you know what else is so real is that we are the nerdiest nerds that ever nerded in all of the nerdverse. Yeah, there's a <laughs> lot of nerding happening here. Turns out maybe that we were secretly wish we were lexicographers, but anyways, it was awesome. That was Corey Stamper, lexicographer and associate editor of Merriam-Webster. You can follow her on Twitter at Corey Stamper. That's K-O-R-Y-S-T-A-M-P-E-R. And make sure to pre-order her book, Word by Word, The Secret Life of Dictionaries, coming out next spring. That sounds very scandaloso. 
Muy escandaloso. Muy escandaloso. I'm going to buy it for everybody I know. I know. Word is born. <laughs> for some of our favorite words, check out mashupamericans.com and tell us your favorite words there, too. The Mashup Americans are me, Rebecca Lehrer. And me, Amy Choi. Our producer today was Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our show is produced by American Public Media and Southern California Public Radio, KPCC. We're also supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts on the web at arts.gov. Happy almost end of 2016, guys. Feliz Christmaca. We love you. Word. Don't tell them to blow up on